0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 616. We welcome Paula Grange. We're going to talk about a building scientist's take on methods, myths, and mistakes. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show. Please support our sponsors and let them know you appreciate their support of IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH. Dot org the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org the Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org the Institute for Inspection Cleaning and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com, Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc. at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at healthyindoors.com
0: and now you can win a cool prize it's time for the iaq radio trivia question be the first to correctly answer simply email your answer to c zlotnick at cs.com or if listening live just text your answer from your computer and now here's the z-man hello everyone Congratulations go out to Dawn Weeks in Ontario, Canada, who was first to identify Bavarian beer purity laws as the oldest consumer protection laws still in existence. The IAQ radio trivia question for today, Friday, February 12, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring of the indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is today's trivia question. Heat transfer is when thermal energy travels from one object to another. Name the three ways in which this occurs. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. This week,
1: we've got Paul LaGrange, a master forensic investigator for moisture and energy movement in both historic and new homes in the hot, humid Gulf Coast southern region of the United States. LaGrange Consulting is a full-service consulting company specializing in energy efficiency, indoor air quality, and sustainability in residential and commercial buildings. Paul was also a builder. He's got a radio show, a blog. He's got Paul's house. He's a multifaceted guy. He's also a great cook. Paul, welcome to IAQ Radio.
2: Good morning. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you, uh
1: Paul. Let, let's start out with a little bit about Lagrange.
2: What's the most common type of work you're doing and and how long have you had the company? So Lagrange Consulting is a an organization I put in place uh 1999-2000 range. Uh, at the time I was building homes and I was really involved in the building science and the the reason for doing so is I was looking to, to provide my customers a better box and saying how can I improve building durability indoor air quality comfort uh, and also be able to sell my homes for a higher price well I was able and successfully be able to to achieve my goals other than getting a higher appraisal from the local appraisers and selling for a higher price but I was able to uh, del- deliver a better product to my customers so I was certainly happy with that uh, the the so I got so involved with building and that I really would like to be able to deliver this information to uh, the local professionals, other builders, engineers, architects, uh, plans drafts folks, uh, as well as HVAC dealers. So I said, I'd really would like to get to the point where I can start offering some um, informational seminars to, to host these things and, and convey that information. So that's really how LaGrange Consulting got into play. I signed my last building contract for our a custom design house in 1999, finished it in 2000. And other than my personal home and my mom and dad's house, I haven't built since still hold the license licenses and insurance is just not active in the building process more towards the consulting side of again, conveying that information. Uh, And on the other part of that is doing some uh, forensic investigations on homes and, and commercial buildings when uh, they're starting to experience some of these, these challenges related to the Gulf South region, mostly related to moisture. And then I really get thrilled when someone comes to me before they start construction and allows me to help them identify some of the pitfalls they can avoid. That doesn't happen very often. The majority of my work really deals with and revolves around problem solving, identifying causation, and then after identifying causation, offering some solutions so they can uh, you know, prevent this from happening again in the future.
1: Well, I'm just curious. Why? Um, why do you feel like you ended up migrating into the consulting side as opposed to continuing to build these, you know, nice energy efficient and uh, quality, high quality homes?
2: So I, I got to the point where it was hard to be excellent at both. Uh, mm-hmm. In the construction side, uh, it, it was it was a time where the industry was, uh, and still is in some respects, we were losing our experienced trades. When I first got in construction business, you had, you know, the grandfather and the uncles and the brothers uh, and your dad, and you were passing and transferring the information to the younger generations, and they carried through. We lost that transfer of knowledge uh, probably in the early '90s, uh, where a lot of those um, younger generations were told, "Hey, you need to go out and become a doctor or a lawyer or, or a CPA and not get in construction." Uh, so there was a gap of. of of loss of information. So it was very challenging to be able to build homes at the quality level that I was used to it, without leaving the job sites. And since we we're doing custom design build, you know, folks were paying really good money for to getting the quality product that I was promising and I always would like to over deliver, uh, and then under promise that. So, uh, it was hard to be good at both and uh, maintain the quality that I really wanted. So I decided since I was building homes for so many years, uh, I would be more of a consultant and then I was a an active builder
1: you know you, you also have something called paul's House on your website and I looked at it and i was I thought, you know this is an interesting concept um where i th- i it looks like sort of like a referral network where you you know tell local people who they can use and uh who yeah. specializes in what Can you tell listeners a little bit more about that and why you did it
2: absolutely so I, I have the great Honor of having a weekly call-in radio show on one of the largest radio stations here in the New Orleans area, and it happened. Uh, they started pursuing me right before Hurricane Katrina and Rita came through the state, hmm. and uh, it got delayed because of the storm. But shortly after Hurricane, uh, the hurricane had come through, we started the show. It's a two-hour call-in radio show, and it was initially designed to give uh, the folks that were rebuilding after the the event. And it was, you know, so widespread, you you had a a wide array of housing stock where there was old historic homes, or uh, it was newer construction that all had to be rebuilt. So it was, the the folks came in from out of state and the local contractors and trades were trying to do the best they could, but they were applying the same building science principles and products for the old historic housing as they were for the brand new houses And, and it had to be done really differently. Uh, so I, it was a means of communicating information so they make some informed choices based on their goals and their budget and and what happened to their house. Uh, so it, it got to a point where I was only on the radio on Saturdays uh, and occasionally during the week when I was a guest host. And Moni, a lot of folks were calling the office saying, hey, who can you recommend to do this type of work? Or what product would you recommend for this approach? But I wasn't in the office. Listen, I was I was out in the field. I was crawling through houses and attics and underneath homes and, and, and doing those inspections. So I wasn't at the office to answer the phone. So we put this website in place, Paul's House, paulshouse.com. And it really got the name of who would I recommend to do that type of work that I would will be willing to have them come to my home. Or sometimes I say on the radio, my mom's house, because you're not going to have anybody to go to your mom's house that you wouldn't feel comfortable and and that I would recommend saying, okay, this is the person I would recommend to come to your house to do this type of work. It's mostly local professionals and local vendors, but there are some national organizations that provide products that are on there uh, that, are, you know, that do very good. Uh, like, for instance, uh, you know, the Dow products, um, the, the Tyvek and the Fluid Apply products are definitely on there. And there's a few others as well. Uh, you, you know, some of the drainage planes, uh, the home slicker type products that, we, that I recommend on a regular basis are for the older housing stock and which I know we'll get to a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but it's really designed to give the listener a, a resource that's available 24 seven to see who would I recommend to come to their house or their place of business and do some improvements it
1: seems like it probably saved you a lot of headache too i mean it was tough to put it together but once it's together you don't have to answer all those questions just say go to paulshouse.com exactly i love it all right so excuse me on that weekly radio show i'm just curious what are the, what's the most common types of questions you get
2: from homeowners so it's somewhat seasonal This time of year, uh, as you can imagine, uh, in in the Gulf South, our our weather now, and today's a good example, where the outside air is really saturated, but it's cold and it's very uncomfortable. So it's that damp cold uh, that we have so common in winter. So we have uh, moisture problems, mostly related to like around windows. And it could be the older housing stock that has the old fashioned double hung wood window frames, uh, not insulated glass. And the, you know, the outside and, and the inside conditions are coming to place and the windows are condensating. the reaching dew point and it's condensing. Uh, and we also have that with the old, some of the older homes, they have aluminum window frames, even mm-hmm. with insulated glass. Uh, or it's the wood flooring. My, my raised house is extremely cold this time of year. What, you know, what can I do about it? And then we have the, the comfort side of it is, man, my heater just runs and runs and runs and my house is so inefficient leaking so much of the outside conditions coming in and I'm cold or my utility bills are high. So this time of year, those are the type questions, but summertime it's, it's, I have a raised house and my wood floors are cupped. You know, why is that occurring? Or I have, you know, warmer parts of my house versus other parts of warmer, or my utility bills are high or my air condition just runs and runs and runs. And I can't get my house comfortable. Those are pretty common summertime questions. Hmm. A two-hour show is a pretty long
1: show, Paul. I, I mean, and you do this every Saturday? Every Saturday, yes, sir. Still get plenty of people calling in and asking questions. Interesting.
2: Well, I'm am truly in- amazed they still calling and asking questions. And you know we've been doing this since 2005, and it's it's. Uh, I keep thinking to myself they're going to stop calling eventually, but they never do. They keep calling. <laughs> it's a fun show. <laughs> you never know what they're going to ask you live on the radio. Interesting.
1: All right, let's go to your presentation at uh, summer camp in 2018. I want to go through those slides, talk a little bit about building science, myths, mistakes. Uh, We changed lies to um, methods, myths, and mistakes, but you'll see lies on here as well, which I think is uh, interesting. Let's let's look at first this industry failure. Uh, What do you mean by this is a design flaw here? It looks like we've got some wood that's, you know, wood floor that's cupped up.
2: Yeah, so essentially (laughs) for our building science folks, the the water vapor barrier is on the wrong side of the floor assembly. Uh, So in this case, that polyurethane finish on top of that wood flooring is preventing the uh, diffusion of water vapor from outside in the crawl space, migrating inward into the house. And if you look at that lower right side photograph, you'll see that's the underside of the wood flooring. And there's some organic growth on the bottom side of that. Uh, So these crawl spaces... Uh, depending um, on the on the the house itself. Sometimes they're a few inches off the ground. Sometimes they're a few feet off the ground. Occasionally they have air conditioning equipment and ductwork located within the crawl space. Uh, sometimes they have lots of ventilation. Sometimes they have very little limited ventilation. There are occasions when I see uh, that the elevation of the ground underneath the footprint of the house is lower than the surrounding yard and garden And when it rains, it's like a little mini lake underneath our house. So there's lots of variables to this, but essentially the building size is the same is that we're going from more to less. So we're going from wet to dry. And when you have a customer that keeps the inside of their house, very cold below the summertime dew point temperatures, and they may have some differential pressures that are exacerbating this, these wood floors become saturated and start cupping. And as you see in this photograph, that, That was taken in November of 2003, so that floor was standing up. So they were still experiencing uh, some substantial movement of the wood flooring even after our our summer cooling season has passed.
1: So there's a lot of issues in in this photo, but you mentioned the polyurethane coating. Um, What if they had used a different coating? Would you recommend that to start with, or is this something where you're going to have to just correct everything
2: because it's gotten so far along? I really wish that our flooring industry would respond to us folks here in the Gulf South, because this is a truly common problem. Uh, we need a durable finish that lets that water vapor come migrate through you know, where it doesn't slow down that water vapor transfer enough where it allows those wood floors to become cupped. So I, I'm a, I'm a belt and suspenders guy. And what I mean by that is I'm gonna wear a belt and suspenders at the same time. So my pants never fall down. And you got to also keep in mind too, Joe, is that folks don't hire me to come to their building or to their home to see things work well. They only hire me to come see the problems. So by the time they, I get to, and I'm engaged in the process, they're looking for a a, a solution that will always work under all conditions. So in this scenario, and, and you brought up a very good question, what do we do for the finish? If we can't use polyurethane, but we want to have a wood flooring, what do we do? Well, I, I remember as a, as a young um, teenager, one of my jobs at my grandparents' house, that lived in a raised house with wood flooring. Is we used to take beeswax and we used to buff the floors with beeswax, oh. or tung oil, oil, or an oil rub would be another good selection in lieu of the polyurethane. Now, good selection because of moisture, not a great selection because of durability. Um, I mean, I I, I think uh, you know the oil rubs and the and the and the wax finishes. Look good when you first put them on, but they require a lot of maintenance, particularly in the high traffic areas. And the other side of this is, I would do something underneath. Uh, so, uh, depending on the condition, depending on the location, uh, I would, uh, and also the termite history—if they have termites or not—I would look at a number of, of potential options, assess the scenario, and and come up with the, the best case recommendation. So. You know, my my tool belt would tell me, listen, you you can create a um, uh, a semi-conditioned crawl space with uh, active dehumidifiers, with some ground cover and closing the outer perimeter. That's a great solution, particularly if the house has had a history of termites. That way, when you have your annual termite inspections, as full disclosure, uh, the exterminating company can see everything. It's not uh, it's not covered up. With uh, the other option would be a a two pound density closed cell spray polyurethane foam applied at least two inches thick. Uh, Or you could also use a foam board, a polyisonate foam board attached to the bottom side of the floor joist uh, that's taped in a continuous manner that's uninterrupted and air sealed on the edges and the butt seams are taped. The penetrations are sealed with a one component foam. Uh, You know, there's, so there's, there's some variables to that, but those are my three go-to type solutions for this type of scenario. All right, let's go to the next one, John.
1: This looks <laughs> right. similar, Paul, but I'm assuming there's something a little different here.
2: Yeah, so here's where the installer, the bottom left-hand side uh, photograph, this is when HVAC dealer did a really poor job of deciding where to place that supply register. So this house is plaster, and you can see that this problem has been happening for quite some time. Uh, this house was also balloon framed, so it had a direct communication with the moist crawl space down below. Uh, so the, the the cavities within this stud framing of this wall are open and communicating with the crawl space down below. You had cold air from the supply register being applied to the plaster. And the reason I think it's been ongoing is because if, if you notice, the lower portion of the wall, they put a stone there because they kept get tired of replacing or repairing the plaster down below. Uh So, they they cut out the plaster, put in a a granite down below, and then put a baseboard trim on top of it. But if you notice, the problem just continued to migrate a little bit higher up the wall. As you can see, the plaster is deformed because of the moisture problems. Uh, This house also had some negative pressures inside the home. So, you can see this it was this very rarely to get to a house where there's this one cause. It's, you know, it's cumulative effect of a lot of different things happening in a number of different areas that are, are. you know, resulting in some of the problems you're having. Uh, what so, are those top
1: two, top left photos? Looks like mold on a, a door. It looks like a pocket
2: door. And it's a pocket door. You got a great eye there, Joe. And uh, it is communicating with uh, the outside condition and, and also the attic above it. So uh, again, bathrooms are really hard spot to control moisture. Uh, we we had some negative pressures in that space and that pocket door framing was communicating with the attic and outside conditions. And you can tell that we had some organic growth at the top right-hand side of that pocket door. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think in this scenario, we could do a better job of source control of, of getting rid of the moisture and elevated moisture in the bathroom with some exhaust fans, uh, with some, you know, training with the homeowner of when and how to use it. But we also we could have done a better job of air sealing and insulating that framing before we installed drywall at that house. So that's what I'm saying. That's an industry failure. They just weren't thinking ahead. Okay. And that's, you know, it's interesting because sometimes what solves
1: one issue may exacerbate another. So you put a, an exhaust fan in that bathroom. That's correct. Now you're creating a negative pressure and you're exacerbating the issue with the balloon framing and so on. It's, it's fascinating. All right, let's go to the next one, John.
2: Laziness and stupidity. What do we have here, Paul? <laughs> You will be surprised how often I see this. Uh, so we do have a bathroom exhaust fan that was installed, and uh, instead of taking the exhaust ducting and bring it either through a uh, a in wall or an extended you know overhang or roof penetration, they just decided to let me go ahead and put this flux duct near a power exhaust fan. What what I love about this is you, you you're not really removing the moisture from the attic space. And the other part is that when that exhaust fan turns on, we were creating a negative pressure in that bathroom uh, without the bathroom fan operating. Uh, so, huh. you know, uh, we had moisture problems down below. is it, no big surprise here. So this is this laziness and and I think a little bit of stupidity. These exhaust fans, pretty common in older homes.
1: Yes. Um they can cause problems. What do you recommend when you see these in, in these older homes? Is it something you try and get people to remove or do you find a way to use it um, and, and you know, do other things to stop problems from occurring and just pulling that warm, moist air in?
2: So uh, I'm I'm a large proponent of source control. So I'm going to remove the moisture of the bathrooms and also the cooktops where it's the two most you know, higher sources of moisture we have by living in our houses. However, I want some controls on it. Uh, my preference is that this bathroom exhaust fan will be operated uh, by humidistat. So as it senses moisture elevating in the bathroom, it will turn on. And as the moisture is removed, uh, it will cycle off. And, you know, I, I like that because it really takes the homeowner out of the equation. You never have to remember to turn the fan on. And you have to remember to go back and turn the fan off. Uh, and then I'm I'm coaching my uh, my homeowners on how, you know, to operate the bathroom. You know, close the bathroom doors, let the exhaust fan remove the moisture at the source. You know, come back a little bit later, 20 minutes, 30 minutes after you've taken the shower, open that bathroom door. Uh, I'm okay with a slight negative pressure for a short period of time because I believe we're doing more good by removing the majority of the moisture in that bathroom, and/or cooktop, depending what exhaust fan we're talking about. Uh, as opposed to letting that moisture migrate throughout the rest of the house when we don't use the exhaust fan,
1: okay, let's go to the next one, John. I've got a couple text questions. I will get to those in a little bit here, Ed, just letting you know i the cranking uh this is the amazing here huh
2: no words for this one what are we uh, what are we looking at here, Paul? So we have uh, a homeowner who called me and said. Listen, the right-hand side of my house is hot. I have a new air conditioning system, and I was told this would solve the problem. My left-hand side, where my bedrooms are, are comfortable. My right-hand side, where the living space is, is just hot. And I don't know why. The AC guy's been out here numerous times. He says the machine is working perfectly, and I'm just a complaining owner. So I climb up in the attic, and the first thing I see is, my gosh, there is absolutely no way that the air distribution system, the ductwork design, is gonna function in this home. So what we have is a very large flexible trunk line, which is not sized properly. First of all, it's not stretched tight. It's, it's kind of slinky and bunched up. So you're not getting the proper airflow through it. And then it goes into a pressure box that feeds a number of different other flexible ductwork that is poorly installed to begin with to get proper airflow. And the other side is how do you balance it? There's absolutely no way you're gonna balance the airflow and get even distribution throughout the home. So, of course, there's going to be hot and cold spots in the house. So, you know, my first thing was, listen, you, you, we need to work very carefully with this, this, this HVAC installer. And apparently he doesn't understand duct design. And uh, he should have recommended that you replace your duct work when you replace your equipment. The other side of this that really bugs me quite a bit is that this homeowner, like many homeowners, are making an investment to purchase high efficiency e- equipment and uh, most times the variable capacity air conditioning system. And these AC installers believe that that variable speed system, the ECM motor is going to overcome poor duct design. There is no way that a variable capacity machine is going to overcome this much uh, errors, these many errors in this duct design to be able to allow this customer to be comfortable. So you have the comfort concern, but then you also have the equipment durability and, and longevity concern. Uh, this equipment is 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 not gonna last as long as as you would expect it to they're expensive the homeowners expecting you know 18 19 years worth of useful life in reality they're hanging out around you know 12 or 13 years because of a poor duct design you got high head pressures on the compressor you got pop calls that are occurring and your house is uncomfortable and you have high operating costs on top of all of this so You know, when a homeowner, you know, hears these things after, you know, investing quite a few thousands of dollars in new equipment, that's the last thing you want to hear. But at the same time, that's the message I need to deliver because it's 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 the truth. I mean, when you start looking at how the system is designed and installed, there's absolutely no possible way it can function the way you expect it to function. Because it's the truth. I like that. (laughs) Cliff, let
1: me know if you want to jump in here at any point.
0: No, I I I'll deal with the text the text ones if you want. Go ahead. Why
1: don't you do that? I got a I got a little computer issue I have to deal with here, but I'll be right back. Go ahead, Cliff. Okay.
0: Yeah, no problem. Okay. Let's see. What do we got here? I guess question number one is a follow-up to uh following Katrina uh with the Ch- uh Chinese drywall problem. Uh you know, has that been resolved? Uh do you have any comments on the quality of the mitigation work done by contractors uh, that, you know, were paid through the litigation uh, settlement? Are there still corrosion and odor problems going on in these houses? So I served as an expert witness in,
2: in the federal case for the Chinese drywall. And so I got the opportunity to see a lot of homes that were contaminated, did a lot of sampling for for, for different organizations. And um, it, it was legit. I mean, when, when you start digging into uh, the off gassing in mean, this product, uh, looking at the, the evaporator coils, uh, the copper, the electrical copper lines, uh, you can certainly see the corrosion. Uh, there were occasions uh, depending on the amount of, of Chinese drywall, because not all these homes were, were completely gutted. They were partially gutted. So you, you know, some have had the original drywall and some have had the new drywall. And then another component of this too uh, is, is that when, uh, and cliff, you can pick up on this really quick is the more energy efficient these homes were rebuilt, the tighter the building envelope uh how well uh the indoor conditions were controlled with temperature as well as indoor you know moisture content had a direct impact to the offgassing of of the Chinese drywall product so there's a lot of different variables that went into this. I don't see that very often uh, occasionally I will have a, a phone call about hey, I'm still having some effects from the Chinese drywall. Uh, I do know that um, from the remediation standpoint, if you went through that process and, and your home was gutted and you replaced your HVAC, your electrical, your copper piping, um, there was a, a great level of success with that. There were some homes were doing that process where I was called into that were, uh, that were gutted as a means of remediating and going through the, uh, that process where the backside of brick veneer will open up, and, you know, for some reason, as these houses were were flooded, uh, when the gutting, the original gutting process occurred after the hurricane, they removed the drywall, they removed the insulation, and uh, some of the wall sheathing uh, used to that. Some of the, depending on the age of the house, that era was uh, a bagasse board, and when it got wet, you know, it actually turned into like shredded wheat. So mm-hmm. sometimes they remove the, the sheathing between the backside of the brick veneer and the extra wall framing, and when uh, the drywall was removed from the Chinese drywall event, and in the insulation that was exposed again. Some houses were retrofitted because of the sheathing being removed during the original construction, and some were not. And uh, it gave us another second bite of the apple, so to speak, on correcting some of that. So you know we're able to come in and put in a drainage plane on the back side of of the brick veneer uh put in an air barrier and then re-insulate it and then hang you know the drywall my preference was uh to use a paperless drywall the fiberglass tape uh you know under those scenarios which I that's my go-to for a lot of these homes that are experiencing moisture problems uh and then of course you know at that point you're you're proming, you're painting you're you're doing your your flooring your millwork and everything else so I do see occasional drywall Chinese drywall house maybe one a, a year now, not very often, but they're still out there.
0: I guess the next question is kind of a follow-up. Uh, you know, when you go out on one of these properties, uh, what, what do you think when the, the customer, the client has also hired an industrial hygienist? You know, how how oh, do you relate to that?
2: I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, okay. I, I think um, they're a great member of the team. Uh, particularly one who wants to identify or help identify causation. You know, m- my biggest heartburn is when uh, there there is a um, indoor air quality concern or organic growth. And, and, and listen, I'm, I'm using the word organic growth because I've been deposed by attorneys too many times. When you call it mold, it's like, well, sir, did you identify that? No. So it's an unidentified black object. So <laughs> organic growth, however you want to describe it. So let me just clarify why I say that term. Um, the attorneys have kind of drilled that into me. Um, I really like the fact that I am part of that team so I can help them identify causation so they don 't wrestle with this problem again in the future uh, you know if if they 're just there and they 're taking sampling and send it to a laboratory and identifying what's you know what it is that 's only part of the problem. The other part of the problem is what do we do to prevent this from happening again and and, and I think that 's what a, a team approach brings to the table. So, that homeowner or the building owner doesn't have to wrestle with this a couple of years in the future.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. They've already paid for it twice, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: Interesting. We uh, right, right, yeah. covered the second time.
0: Right, right. Joe, are you back? Yes. Or?
1: Yeah, I'm back. Let's okay. stop and uh, thank our sponsors here at halftime. We'll be back. We're going to go through the rest of these slides. You got to stick around for this. We'll be back in two minutes with Paul LaGrange, our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, (laughs) a Healthier World, at AIHA.org, A-C-G-I-H. Advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at iaqa.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at iicrc.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, August 10 through 12, 2021 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping. Great pricing. Same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus feature-rich particle counters, and air quality instrumentation, count on us at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable short-term and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back for the second half. We've got Paul LaGrange, a building scientist, take on methods, myths, and mistakes. John, let's go back to the slides and look at the next one. Here we go. All right. So what do we have here? Looks
2: like uh, I'm not positive. Looks like some ghosting on the carpet there, Paul. So sometimes homeowners contribute to the differential pressures inside the house. When the air conditioner or heater is running and they close in the bedroom doors and the return air intake is in the hallway or or the common area of the house, you know, that bedroom becomes positively pressurized and the uh, hallway and the common area of the home become under negative pressure when the HVAC's working, the door's closed. And if you look at the top left-hand side of that photograph, that top photograph, you'll see a bunch of dust is accumulated on the doorstop. And measured with a manometer, uh, it's got 14.1 Pascals when uh, the doors closed and the HVAC system is operating. So far, far greater than, uh, you know, Joe Steberg's recommendation, no more than, than three Pascals differential between one side of the door and the other. And, uh, you know, the, the carpet at the bottom, that ghosting, it's just collecting the dust and, you know, folks are always complaining, my gosh, it's, it's warm in these bedrooms and the air conditions running. And I have moisture problems in my, you know, my den and my kitchen, and I don't know why. And it's not one door closed, man. I get to these homes and there's like four or five doors closed all the time. And people close doors for a lot of different reasons. And I try to I, I get them to, Change their behavior. I haven't had much success, to be honest with you. I don't have much success in trying to convince them to increase the temperature of their house during the summertime to get above the summertime dew point temperatures and also don't have much success in getting them to open the doors. And if you notice, uh, you got such a high difference of pressure, you can't undercut this door high enough where aesthetically it's pleasing and still allow enough free airspace for the, the supplier to go from the bedroom into the hallway. So at this point, you need to have uh, like a tamarack, uh, you know, passive air product, or you could put an active return air in that space and balance it with the damper to get some equal pressures between return and, and supply. All
0: right. Cliff, do you have a follow up? I, I do, um, Paul. One of the things that I noticed, that Joe and I noticed living in the north, is that typically when they put in the heating and ventilation system uh, up here in Pennsylvania, Generally, every room is going to have both return and supply. And I know sometimes going down south, uh, that's where they tend to only have perhaps one in the hallway or, or, or whatever. So I'm just wondering if it's a southern thing or, uh, you know, do, they, do these houses generally only have one or two cold air returns or do they have them in every room as well? So
2: your method is far superior than what we're doing down South cliff. And, and I would prefer that we had a return supply in every large room inside the house so that we can have better temperature control uh, and, and not have those differential pressures. But it is very common in the South just to have one, sometimes two return air intakes. And it, it does cause some issues. It's I'm not picking on the engineers, but you know, the term is valued engineering Essentially, it's the HVAC installer and the homeowners and and builders that are driving this because they're trying to save cost, but they're they're creating other problems. And uh, I really, if if I'm involved with this project early on, or if I'm solving a problem, uh, you know, the very first thing I'm going to talk about is we need to do something different to, to avoid having this problem. Thanks. Let's go to the next one, John.
1: We're going to have to get moving here because uh, we'll never get through them all. All right. Effects of differential pressure. Oh, we've got a uh, thermal imaging camera here. What's going on
2: here, Paul? Oh, I see the condensation on that diffuser. <laughs> okay, Sure. Absolutely. So that this is this part of the house that has that negative pressure and uh, that infrared thermal imaging scan on the left-hand side, that's a, a knee wall. Uh, so that wall, of, the upper portion of the wall is exposed to an adjacent attic. And uh, it it just it's just drawing in some some heat from that attic, and uh, because of the negative pressures, it's making it worse. And you and, you know sometimes uh, depending on the temperature and the saturation rate of that drywall, you may have some organic growth. And then the supply register right hand side is it's it's just condensing, reaching dew points, condensing because of the uh, the negative pressures inside the house. You know, at least this portion of the house is drawing in either the attic or the outdoor moisture. And uh, voila, we, you know, it's raking across those cool surfaces and we get some condensation. What about the uh, solution on this one, Paul? So my first go-to is let's do something to prevent the differential pressures. Uh, And then the other part of this is let's do an active air barrier on the attic side of this new wall. Because a lot of times it's just insulation that's in the stud cavities. On the attic side, you don't have uh, that, that recommended air barrier. Uh, so let's go ahead and put a, a continuous uninterrupted air barrier on the attic side. If the insulation's falling out of the cavity, let's replace that first before we put that air barrier up. Uh, and then let's try and prevent uh, the, the, those cool surfaces from condensing. All right, let's go to the next one.
1: Oh, here's a beauty. Okay. We've got some exterior sheathing that looks like, what is that? Uh, Eaves? Uh,
2: this, uh, this, and this, I see this with eaves, and also see it with conventional uh, metal lav cement-based stucco. A lot of folks in the south, for some reason, don't put in a drainage plane, uh-huh. and they apply it directly to sometimes a single layer of a of a building wrap, and and not have multiple layers, and um, just you have a poor flashing job for the window above it, and when it rains, and keep in mind we're in the south, we get forty to sixty inches of annual rainfall. If that wind is not properly flashed, that water is going to get to that stucco right below it. As you can see where the building paper has been removed, that's where the majority of the moisture problems were occurring.
1: Yeah, yeah, wind-driven. You get a lot of wind-driven rain, too, I'm sure. Yes, sir. All right, go to the next one, John.
2: Same scenario. Uh, it, it's just a, a lower part, and look at how much that OSB wall sheathing has um, has deteriorated. This is a house that's actually only two and a half years old. I remember this house well.
3: Wow. and
2: it, it was, look, But look at the flashing uh, on the window. Uh, at first look, it appears to be correct. But once you remove this window, you'll realize that that sill flashing is not installed properly. Uh, and uh, it, we, did, we also did not have a drainage plane for the stucco. Uh, so any we, didn't have, this? we didn't have a weep screen at the bottom of the stucco either. Uh, okay. So it's just holding that water. So this
1: water was mostly coming from above, but you, you may have also gotten some from below.
2: So bouncing back up from the bottom, it, it just became accumulated at the bottom of that stucco wall. This was a, a cement-based metal lav stucco. You can see there's some remnants of that, uh that metal lav on the face of that
3: oh yeah. yeah so
2: mm-hmm. it it's just all around. This is a this is an industry failure. This this was not a homeowner failure. This was an industry failure you know the same thing happens with stone uh
1: with the 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 faux stone and um in this case there looks like there's just one layer of house wrap if they had put a second layer of house wrap on and of course flashed that properly do you think that would have uh solved this problem or it was coming eventually anyway there's no weak screen obviously
2: but you you know it i think it's a, a large step in the right direction to have multiple layers for that bond break and also have that place for the moisture to weep out the bottom. I, and if they had the correct flashing, um, you know, when we get as much rainfall as we get here in the South, I sure would like to uh, have a more robust drainage plane that would separate uh, not only the pressures, but also uh, have a pathway for that water to weep out to the bottom. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. Industry
1: homeowner challenges maintaining indoor temperatures below outdoor dew points. All right. And large cooktop exhaust fans closing interior bedrooms. We talked about and water vapors on the inside of assemblies. Let's take a look at the next one. There we go. Oh, here we go, Paul. Talk to us about this one.
2: <laughs> so this is some folks that applied uh, my friends from up north, uh, that building science to a home down south. That's Canadian <laughs> building science there. huh? <laughs> <laughs> if you look carefully in the upper part of the, of the photograph, where um, the sheetrock's been removed, but the plastic this screen still in place, you can see some black uh, organic growth on the face of that uh, fiberglass insulation. And then the lower part, you can see where the plywood wall sheathing is discolored. So you, you definitely had some moisture that was occurring between the uh, outside of the insulation and the inside face of that plywood wall sheathing. Uh, so, uh, you know, the water vapor barrier being on the inside of the assembly in the Gulf South, this, is a bad idea. And I do I, run into this probably a handful of times every year. What is
1: there any way to fix that without tearing everything out and redoing it?
2: That's a great question, Joe. And and I haven't come up with one yet. I, I mean, there's some things we can do to try and protect that exterior uh, assembly from air leakage, from the temperature. We can, you know, we're keeping it inside the house um you know from making sure we don't have any rainwater intrusion happen extra well i think those are steps in the right direction but for me to hang my hat on and say that is going to solve all your problems i, I can never say that because there are going to be times when you are going to have um some water diffusion or some uh, vapor diffusion coming that wall and you still possibly could have some some problems uh, all right so let's I, I don't let's know try Let's try and get a couple more in real quick before uh, we go to the roundup. What do we have here, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> this is a beauty. Okay. <laughs> I, I love seeing this, and I probably see this about a dozen, a dozen half times a year. Um, we have an installer that said, let me go ahead and put some really good expensive spray polyurethane foam on the inside of the roof deck to address the temperatures, but we still could have ventilation in your attic. So we're still coming in with with uh, intake air at the overhang so the or the soffits. And we get exhausted at the top or near the ridge of the, of the peak of the roof. In this case, we're, we're using a wind turbine. I've seen it with power ventilators, with exhaust fans, uh, which really make this, this building science go crazy in the sense that uh, all the cool surfaces, you know, b- back to the, the statement, a lot of times we don't want to give up real estate below the ceiling. So we place our air conditioning equipment and our supply dock work in the attic space. And we make the attic cooler because of the spray foam, but we're still bringing in the outside moisture. And those cool surfaces within this environment are going to reach dew point very, very fast. And it's going to sweat and uh, it's, you know, eventually it's going to grow mold and stain your ceiling. What's the solution here? Do dehumidify that air in the attic or find a way to uh, balance it out a little bit temperature wise? So, my first suggestion is we need to air seal. Let's make this a true unvented semi-conditioned attic space. And let's go ahead and close off the ventilation, intake, and exhaust. And if depending on the quality of the installation of the spray foam and also the pitch of the roof, uh, we may or may not have to add a dehumidifier to that attic space. There are a lot of times oh. we're adding dehumidifiers to the attic space because you can't get it airtight a lot of these homes aren't really candidates for spray foam uh, and in our industry does a poor job of identifying when we should or shouldn't use spray polyurethane foam on existing houses. If it's new construction, you have access. If it's existing retrofits, sometimes you don't have the proper access. W- would
1: you also suggest having that spray foam cover those uh, two by fours there?
2: I would. And, and if you notice it, it, this was a closed cell product that was installed very thin uh, you, you can see that's, you know, it's three quarters the inch thick. In reality, you certainly need something thicker to get a higher R value. Uh, and then I would definitely cover all that wood framing uh, for the rafters as as well as the, the ridges and the hips and the valleys. All right, John, let's see if we can get one more in real quick. Uh, user air, Paul, what do we have here? Oh, I know what this one is. All right. I love my homeowners <laughs> in the summertime. You know, they're loading the <laughs> thermostat to be comfortable because they're trying to remove more moisture or they're just plain like it cold. And um, when your summertime here in the Gulf South, when the outside summertime dew point temperature is in the low 70s, and your thermostat set to 69 degrees, you're almost guaranteeing to have moisture problems inside your house. And then you have the fan in the on position versus the auto position. So you're, when your outside is cycled on, it's dehumidifying inside your home. And when the thermostat temperature is satisfied, the fan continues to run when the outside com- condenser turns off. Well, you've taken all that moisture you play good money for it to remove in the evaporator coil, um, and and you're redistributing it back into your home. So you're actually increasing the relative humidity in your house, not decreasing. So this is getting kicked in the knees a number of different ways, and um, quite frankly, it's it's a common occurrence. Interesting. Hey, Paul, can you stick around an extra ten minutes? Sure, I'd be happy to.
1: All right, let's go to the roundup at, at uh, 1 o'clock, guys. I'd like to get through some more of these slides. Let's go to another one, John. All right, here's the homeowner's solution to
2: a leaky attic.
1: Oh, okay, this is beautiful.
2: <laughs> Listen, this this is an actual picture of one of my customers, and they got really creative to keep that attic pull-down stair from coming down. They start off with tape. When tape didn't work, they they push something into the other side of the door to keep it from falling down and letting that hot, moist, dusty attic air to come in inside the house so yeah we we we, got to do a little better than this is that that hallway seems really narrow is that common no it's not uh it just uh, i guess it was a retrofit and they didn't make it very wide okay
1: next one john industry lies number one insulating without a drainage plane or air barrier is okay all right two variable capacity systems perform like the humidifiers and three Variable capacity air handlers can overcome poor duct design. Let's go to the next slide, John, and we'll show one of these, I'm sure.
2: Oh, here's the facts. Paul, let's go through the facts. So here's the challenge, and, and we kind of touched base on some of these. Um, I really probably want to focus on um, on what happens with variable capacity equipment, and this is the one I get most pushback on. And it, I get pushback on HVAC dealers and also HVAC suppliers, and I don't mean to be picking on any particular uh, industry, except I don't like the message and how the message is communicated. And and let me tell you the reason why. But first, before I start that, I have variable capacity HVAC equipment at my office as well as my home. I believe in the technology. I think it has a great place in the market under certain conditions. I think it doesn't have a place in the market under other certain conditions. So let me kind of break that down. If, right. if you're building a new construction home – by all means, you need to strongly consider, uh, you know, variable refrigerant flow because the technology is superb in comfort for, for temperature, for moisture control, uh, for uh, operating costs. It's just far superior. And, and that's what I have in my home. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a great product and great technology. However, when you take that same technology, and you put it into a home that has a leaky building envelope or it's a historic house. Uh, and they, the homeowners are promised, you're going to dehumidify your home because there's a dehumidifier built into these systems. Don't you? And, and I hate that terminology because that's not necessarily true. Yes, these systems do a far, far, far superior job of dehumidifying, removing moisture than single speed machines, particularly since we've changed from a, an R22 to a 410A refrigerant. And since we've gone from a 10 share system to a, a 13, 14 share system. Mm-hmm. they're absolutely right there, there's no arguing with that but the problem is, is that these homeowners are expecting a dehumidifier when reality it's not and it, it's the way these products are sold and installed that i have some heartburn with and when you have a homeowner who has a leaky environment and uh, the building envelope just allowing a large amount of air filtration then you have a very cold interior because these systems run for longer periods of time at colder temperatures, you are at risk of the cool surfaces inside your home, as well as where the mechanical equipment is located, whether it's underneath a, a raised house in the crawl space or the equipment is installed in the attic. Those cold surfaces are going to reach dew point much faster with a variable capacity piece of equipment than they mm-hmm. would be with a single speed machine that turns cycles on and cycles off. And uh, it, it's it's the message that I have the biggest heartburn with because people's expectations are, are terribly destroyed when it doesn't function the way they think a dehumidifier would function.
1: Okay. Are you doing a lot of adding dehumidification to existing systems?
2: I am. And, and uh, we have a sister company that does installation of, of dehumidifiers. We're, we're state licensed for HVAC, but we really don't install air conditioner heater systems. We're mostly focusing on uh, the demification. And we'll do that uh, depending on the circumstance. We'll do that underneath a raised home. We'll do it for the inside living space, but also we're doing a lot in attic spaces too, because uh, there are a lot of attics where the homeowners already pay thousands of dollars for variable speed uh, equipment that they don't want to remove, but we need to address the moisture problem. So we're doing that with some active dehumidifiers and some other changes to the attic and the ventilation to accommodate that. And I, I love
1: the fact that they have these ventilating filtering dehumidifiers today that um, I assume you're using some of these from, you know, like April air and um, uh, ultra air. Yes, sir. Yep. Yep. Uh, so are
2: you using a lot of those or, or? we are okay. And, then, and depending on the location uh, I had mentioned to you earlier before the show, I was spending a lot of time at grand isle, which is an island at the end of the state of Louisiana on the edge of Gulf of Mexico. When we get to dehumidifying in those really extreme locations, we're actually using dehumidifiers that are combined with desiccant wheels to overcome that extreme condition. Because wow. refrigerated type without desiccant really can't keep up. Interesting. Any thoughts on um, you know we're
1: we're adding these dehumidifiers now, ventilating, filtering dehumidifiers, but I wonder if people ever look at the coils. And, and clean them and maintain them. Any thoughts
2: on that? So one of the things we do, our sister company offers, is that not only do we design and install, uh, but we use Wi-Fi uh, data loggers and we we monitor the conditions of the space where we're gaining control over. And then we come back every six months and change the filter of the humidifier, put in pan tablets to make sure that the drains don't get clogged up with fungal growth. And we're verifying the performance. We're, we're measuring... Uh, the, the incoming uh, air temperature and the, and the uh, outgoing air temperature to make sure that machine, that dehumidifier is performing at capacity. Uh, and we do that every six months. And, and we also change the batteries of the data loggers so that we can also, uh, you know, get live data of, and as well as email alerts of what's happening in that condition to make sure it's performing the way we promised it's going to perform.
1: Very interesting. Let's get another slide in, John. I got about four minutes to we're going to have to, uh, to the
2: roundup. All right. Believing the lie. What's this showing us, Paul? <laughs> uh, I'm asking you to go to the next slide if you don't mind, John, as well. Go ahead. So the you, oh, yeah. Better yet. <laughs> so uh, This is a, a home uh, that had wood sodding, but behind the wood sodding was the the stud framing. Didn't have any wall sheathing. Didn't have a drenched plane. And uh, this house was insulated with a, uh a insulation in the wall cavity after Hurricane Katrina. And over time, it, it just decayed and rotted. The, the, the siding just rotted and fell off the wall. And then, and then they got termites on, on top of that. And the, the problem was is that when they rebuilt this home, uh, no one took into account that we need to put a drainage plane directly behind this wood siding to allow the the water that went through the siding or around the old window flashing, whatever however it, 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 it was coming into the wall cavity, let it weep and drain out to the bottom and keep this wood siding dry because it became saturated. It stayed saturated because it was in full contact with the insulation behind it. Uh, And then eventually the insulation wasn't performing to the R value you expected to because it got wet and stayed wet. And then you had mold growth or organic growth. And uh, it just, you know, the millwork started deteriorating. The paint on the inside of the sheet rock started bubbling. So it just was a bad, bad approach. And this can be done from inside. I think you've got
1: some photos of that later in this presentation.
2: Yep. So here it is right here. So this is an historic house that was in the city of New Orleans that this homeowner wanted to rebuild their home and bring it into uh, an era that was comfortable, had moisture control, had great indoor quality, but she was very concerned about building durability. So this is the ones I was able to get involved with uh, before they started construction, which I love this because it allows me to help them solve some of the problems where we are concerned about the building durability before the fact, not after the fact. So in this one, we, it's a historic district. We couldn't remove the siding. We couldn't change the windows. So everything we had to do was from the inside. Uh, so um, we actually used a, um, a mesh rain slicker in between the studs so that the, known the water was coming through, you can see the water standing in the backside of, of the siding and the clappards. Uh, we, with that rain slicker uh, allowed the water to come through, weep out towards the bottom. This was balloon framing. And then we put in a extruded polystyrene foam board on top of the, um, the home slicker. And we, then we air sealed it to the studs to the left and to the right. And then we insulated it with an open cell polyurethane foam. So we get the best of all the worlds. We, we, we created our drainage plane. We separated our wood sodding so it wouldn't become saturated and stay saturated. It would dry. So when you have the problems with the peeling paint on the exterior or the wood decaying, Uh, We have an air barrier. We have a thermal barrier, which was never there before. And then we used a paperless drywall with fiberglass tape with a properly sized design uh, HVAC system. And she is so comfortable in this house. I touch base with her probably about once every two years just to connect with her. And then we use green building products because this was actually part of the National Home Builders Association uh, green building tour that they hosted in New Orleans shortly after Hurricane Katrina. So th- th- this was, I love protecting the structure first. I think that needs to be a priority and everything else comes along with it. If, if you're protecting building durability, you know, you, your indoor air quality, your comfort, your low operating cost all come for a, a, a free ride and it really works well.
1: Fantastic. Let's, John, I think maybe there's slides that show some of what he just talked about coming up here. No, maybe not.
2: No, no keep going. There, uh, There you go. There's one. There you
1: go. There you go. That's the water drainage space. Yes. Plastic mesh. And then you put, okay, go back one more, John. You see how we, go ahead, I'm sorry. You
2: see that foam they're putting, go ahead. So we put the, the, the extruded polystyrene foam board in between the studs, and we're separating that from the insulation. We did this improvement before the electrician and plumber came in and roughed in. We let them rough in after this. And then we came in and corrected any of the exterior wall penetrations. And then we insulated after the fact right before using that paperless drywall. But
0: we'll if you go to the truck. next
2: slide, you, you'll see how we addressed the balloon framing. We didn't mm. want to put a block all the way into the thickness of the studs. We just did it from the foam board towards the inside of the home because we didn't want to block where that water would weep to the bottom of, of, that, um, of that wall assembly. What's not shown is that we also applied closed cell spray polyurethane to the underside of the floor assembly. So when we got to the outside wall, we made absolutely certain that we didn't block off this the bottom side of the home slicker or our weep screed, so to speak, so that when the water got in the wall, it would have a place to drain. It wasn't blocked by the closed cell foam on the underside of the flooring.
1: Very interesting. Let's go. There you go. This is the finishing up here, I think, Paul. Yes, sir. We did talk about the flood, uh, the flood repairs too, with uh, uh, when we did the show with uh, Claudette. Let's yes. go to the roundup, John. All right, let's bring on the restoration industry global Watchdog, Pete Consiglio. You still with us, Pete? Of course, I can't. You see me in the
3: zoom? <laughs> I don't. I, I, I'm so fascinated. Well, by I you. just turned. I just turned the zoom out a little bit. So, Joe, you know, I had I got a lunch today with Blochinger at one o'clock, but then he had some IICRC meeting. He had a hat. Well, it was going to be at noon. We were going to call in with the cannolis for the roundup on my <laughs> phone. But then, then what happened is uh, he had an IICRC standards call, which is over to once. So I said we'll meet. we will meet at one fifteen because he's over here in Naples doing an inspection from the other side Alligator Alley. So I figured, all right, we'll do that. But something told me I'm going to be late. And you yeah. confirmed that at 10 minutes to one when you said, all right, let's go to one o'clock with the case studies because I knew you couldn't end it. And so <laughs> anyway, we'll watch into your way. He'll get there first and get the table. Listen, I got to tell you, I think that this model has been permanently set for future IAQA shows by doing these case studies in the second half, because not only did it, you know, the all alive and callers love them generates a lot of questions, but, you know, I think it adds a lot of value. You know, maybe we ought to just figure on slightly expanding the show a few minutes, just so people know on these kind of shows. So we actually have time to do justice when I don't, you know, we don't always have to bump it back, but I think, um, I think I I could kind of see that's where we're going with this because, uh, you know, it, it, it's really the, these case studies really gives the true, you know, the lessons learned and all that kind of stuff. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, when Paul, once Paul started doing these uh, podcasts on the Saturdays, I got to tell you, for all the years of the summer camp, he always would take off to go do the Paul's house during the summer camp thing. You know, in the early years, I didn't realize what the heck he was doing. And then eventually I said, well, what's this Paul house stuff? You know, I, I will tell you a little bit of history. When I first met Paul, didn't really know he was Paul then. <laughs> do you remember when it was Paul when we first met? I do. Tell me when it was.
2: So that was uh, 2005, my first year at Building Science Camp.
3: Nah, it was before then. You see, really? you didn't remember. It was in the late 90s, I believe. All right. And Glenn Ray and Huey. I- and uh, cool. Harvey, when he was alive, that whole little group of guys, the Cajun restoration guys yes. from Lafayette and Baton Rouge, they were connected with Claudette at the Extension Institute. And that was back in the day before I took my sabbatical when the hottest duo on the restoration, education, mold comedy circuit was Mac Pierce and Pete Sigley. We traveled all over the country doing these programs. Yep. And... Glenn organized us to come down to Baton Rouge and do one there at that Claudette sponsored at the Institute. And you were there in the audience, as I recall. I'm not sure whether you were a trainer then with her or not. And then I remember years later at summer camp, I met Claudette, or I saw Claudette there, I hadn't seen her. And then a couple of years after that, you kind of came along, and then one thing led to another, and now the, the legacy of the executive chef at summer camp carries on. Now there's two little things that a lot of people may not know. Paul's half Sicilian and the other half is that Cajun, right? Yes. And the other thing is his roots initially were in restoration. So in the summer camp legacy of the lineage of executive chefs, <laughs> the Sicilian tradition yep. and the restoration influence still lives on. And, uh, it's kind of interesting. I, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't really have much, you know, to, to say from the interview. I think the interview was great. You do a terrific job. And I think that, um, uh, you know, the whole thing with building science is really something that um, the industry didn't really understand. You know, I got to give my shout out to Mr. Zlotnick because what a lot of people don't recognize with the Z-Man is he, uh, he, well, first of all, anyone who knows him knows that he's an innovator. He's got insights, and he's the original trail, trailblazer, and there's nobody that really is ever going to supplant him as that as long as he has a breath, and, you know, we, he's not in a home somewhere. And if you do decide to go in one, come to Florida. Definitely don't go to, go to New York, but we'll leave it at that. Now, the one thing I will say is this. In the 90s, when he first met Mac, and then through another friend of ours met Joe, We brought the building science training to REA under the Water Loss Institute in the mid nineties. That's how we met Joe. That's what led to summer camp. And this is how all this stuff is kind of carried on. And uh, I think we have a whole new generation of people in the industry now who uh, need to be trained and understand why knowing building science training is important, whether they're environmental consultants, mold guys, restoration guys, the construction trades, whatever they're in. And in the very early days, of doing the building science training with RAA, there was the emerging mold and like these drying, the drying niche, Joe. And we thought that they would be the guys that would be the most interested to come. But we found out that they weren't. The guys who were the most interested were all the old school fire reconstruction guys. They came in droves. And what they realized is, and they were obviously were doing the water work too, but they understanding these principles allowed them to deal with the, the pressure differentials, you know, all the migration and how the moisture and everything goes through these buildings that helped them with their reconstruction projects, evaluating, you know, all that restoration stuff. And then, of course, years later, Marty King came for two years. Those of you summer camp guys and quite a few of you really are summer camp guys who are in the live and thread. But uh, Marty came and then uh, Joe had him do a cameo presentation there the one year which uh, was was really a big success. And Marty, uh, the presentation was on dealing with building science principles and air movement and pressurization and how to use them and apply them in, uh, in detecting smoke odors and fire restoration. I just said that the audience really uh, found it useful and helpful because it was a little different, you know, for the, for the summer camp audience. So, uh, you know, it's kind of been a long history. And I think, uh, you know, through interviews with a lot of the summer camp people with IQA radio, and a lot of the, uh, the moisture mob people, you know, that this whole new emerging group who were all the flooring guys that started at Restoration years ago, and now we kind of come back together to, you know, to help pass on what we know and to cross-pollinate. I mean, I think the show, really, in all sincerity, is right in the middle of this. And, I, and quite frankly, I don't believe, outside of a lot of the loyal listeners and people who reach out to guys like me and Cliff and others, they have no idea what a resource the I A Q archives are, and Cliff, you're looking at me. You put that. You can you put that in the in the blog, because I don't think they realize the hundreds of people that you interviewed, the in depth nature, the early early, you know, before anyone even could pronounce podcast through talk show that I A Q radio was on, the 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 job of in the early years of all the guys that you got that guys got to interview. It's the who's who, and a lot of these guys are not with us anymore, and then. Before blogs became, you know, fashionable and people knew what they were, then Cliff started doing them several years back. And then as we do these follow-up shows with guys like Steve Brook and Mac and Major and Speedback, and I could keep going on, and Claude, then what happens is, you know, we integrate the first thing, interview, with the second. And now you have a blog because a lot of people may or may not want to have the time to listen to the podcast, but they'll read the blog. And I think that's unbelievably powerful to archive and document industry history that you can't find anywhere else. And the fact you can get it for free and really, you know, appreciate and thank the, uh, the you know, the, the sponsors that allow this show to be offered for that. You know, Joe, you always say this and you guys recognize it. I'm not sure that people really understand it. Maybe they think, ah, here he goes, just giving a tap on the shoulder. No those guys really need the recognition and deserve it because they basically help provide this service to the industry. And, uh, and quite frankly, I, I just think it's just, uh, it's just second to none. So, you know, I don't know. Thanks for letting me go on the rant, but, uh, I got a new haircut. You notice I'm not wearing my cap today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going out in public. With my buddy to our nineteen told is anyone who comes to South Florida, you know, come, come visit me. We got, I got the Romo's here about five minutes from my house. It won't be that late. And, uh, we eat outdoors, you know, they've got, they do all the COVID principles. They follow all the CDC protocols. Florida is not crazy. Like the media sometimes reports, you know, people pay attention down here. We just kind of, you know, do our thing. But, uh, I have met, met a lot of, a lot of guys there who come down and anytime anyone's in the area, you know, definitely give me a call and let us know. So anyway, thanks for the time, Joe and Cliff Paul. Great job. Uh, appreciate all you guys that called in live, you know, John Lapintore, Ed Light, Don Weeks, uh, you know, um, uh, Mickey Lee got a chance last week. He couldn't call in because, uh, you know, he, he had, uh, he was doing his, his, uh, global webinar and, uh, one of the younger millennial guys. I'll give a shout out, John Eggleston. That's got a great little, got a, his little uh, deal that he does, uh, kind of a yes. different alternative kind of podcast and, you know, more in the line of what uh, Jeff Cross and the Straight Talk people do. And, uh, you know, it's alternative. There's room in the marketplace for everyone. I'm glad they're all calling in. Hope they get some value and, uh, you know, the networking opportunities abound. Well, I don't know if I'm going to see in August Don't make a decision by the end of April, but other than that, I mean, we only, only live off, the I-10. If I take, if I go north on 75 and before I get into Georgia to go to land I take a left. I'm going to wind up in New Orleans. Maybe we need to meet at some halfway point, you know, along the I-10 I-75 corridor just because. That ain't a bad thing. And uh, bring your better half with you, too. I always enjoy having, uh, sitting down and breaking bread with Charlene. I would be happy to. That sounds like Thanks a plan. Be. Much appreciated. Cliff, yeah. anything you want to add before we go?
0: I'm done. I think Pete said it all and more. All
1: right. Well, thank you for that, Pete. And before we go, Paul, anything you'd like to add, anything we missed?
2: Listen, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you guys today. Um I, I love talking this stuff and uh, it, I, I love seeing the, the pioneers like uh, Pete was just talking about and learn from them. And there's always something, learn something new each and every day. And and, and I love this uh being here and the resources y'all have. So thank you for, for having me. It's been a privilege. Uh, it-
1: It shows that you love talking about it, Paul, and uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Paul LaGrange, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, to the Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel, saying thanks for listening.